Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 61? I think I have the right one tonight. The rock that is higher than I, it is called the royal psalm by some. It is also called a prayer for and by the king. It's generally believed that this psalm, this prayer, which was a musical prayer from David, came from David when he was in exile because of the rebellion of his son Absalom. And he was exiled, he's running for his life, really, from Absalom's people. And he was exiled as well from the tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, to the Israelites was the place of the presence of God. I say this many times, but it, 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 it continues to astonish me. Psalms, for the most part, of course they're musical, thus they are psalms, but they are prayers. They are very emotional. The gamut of human emotions is revealed and seen in these prayers, which are generally set to music, and even the instruction of what kind of how the music should be is, is given in the superscript to the beginning of the psalm. So when you think of these, okay, here's a, it's, it's the divinely inspired word of God, psalms. Psalm 61, divinely inspired word of God. This means that David, the troubled king in exile, brokenhearted, I'm sure, this was his son, and these were some of the, close, the people who were closest to him, and they've broken his trust and betrayed him. And he's the one who carries the covenant from uh, Yahweh. And there's no reason to believe that Absalom would be the one through whom the covenant would be carried God had not revealed that to, to David. So he's, to, to say he's bewildered here is, is, is a gross understatement. He's brokenhearted. He's probably confused and, and needs to be focused on what the Lord would have him do and how the Lord will work it out. But you have, if you think of David, God, God just sort of breaks him open and pours this prayer into his mind and into his heart. And this is how God expects him to pray. And these are, these are interesting things. Every psalm is that way. And, and I've told you this before. My daddy would say it's like getting sassy with somebody. Sometimes a psalmist sounds like he's getting sassy with God. He sort of why, why are you doing this? You know, what's all this? And as we think of the Psalms as being divinely inspired scripture, we see our, our 
Creator, our God, understanding us so much that He knows what and how we need to pray. And so He just gives it to us. Well, that's great. That's just, it's really something. David may or may not realize it, I don't know, but as he prays and as he sings this very personal psalm, we're going to see in the language, it's very personal, probably private, just between him and the Lord as he, as he plays his instrument and sings his prayer. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's something coming from David, but it can only come from David because God poured it into him. So God knows him, and, and, and God's willing to receive this. God wants to receive this prayer, and, and so he gives it to David. Well, let's, let's look at it. First of all, here's the call to God. For the conductor or the chief musician, whatever, on Neganoth of David. That's a stringed instrument. Now, when you see the, when you see the Hebrew words, you come to see that it's in the singular what that means is there's a lone stringed instrument. This is one guy and his guitar or harp or whatever. So it's not, it's, it's not, it's not set to a mode of music that requires several parts coming from the instruments. It's a lonely heart praying a lonely prayer, singing a lonely song to God. Nobody but him and God. He's alone. He's running from Absalom. If you read, if you read about it in the books of Samuel, you'll know that he, he hid in, just like when he ran from Saul, he, he hid in caves and in high weeds. And, and sometimes the enemy, the people looking for him to kill him were just a few feet away. And he just would sit still and divinely these, these enemies were guided around somewhere else. And he would express fear and then he would express confidence and then he would express praise as he would go through his prayer uh, so many times. So here it's a very personal, singular David and his instrument. Nobody else. It would remind us of how David, you know, I read, oh, it's been decades ago, I guess. I did a very, a very thorough study on the 23rd Psalm. And there's a general belief that it's quite possible that he wrote that Psalm as a shepherd boy, not as a king, but he was just a boy, just a teenager when he wrote that Psalm. All kinds of indications and if that's the case, you can imagine just a, 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 the only thing around him were his sheep and they were utterly dependent upon him. They, they, they had enemies and he had to stand between his sheep and the enemies, bears and jackals and whatever, lions, whatever. He would lead them. They can't lead themselves. They have to follow. And he would take them to where they needed to be the right kind of pasture, the best and freshest water, but it had to be still waters because they had a, a natural, instinctive, deathly fear of the sound of running water. 
because water could absorb into their wool and cause them to weigh down. And even in a shallow stream of water, they could drown. So he had to be careful of all these, all these things that, uh, that only a shepherd could know about his sheep. And of course, he, he talks about how Yahweh is the shepherd. And the, the, the belief is that he was just a boy and he was out there with his stringed instrument out there way out in the pasture land, just he and the Lord and the sheep for which he was responsible, utterly responsible. And so when you think about that, he's back, he's back to this, he's back to this singular, lonely, gripping, intimate time of prayer that he would put to music. Extraordinarily talented he must have been. And so as he would write it, then he would sing it musically. And this was how he prayed, apparently. And it's just the string instrument and David. Apparently, in flight for his life, because of the rebellion of his son, Absalom. Hear my cry. Shemel, hear. This is a, um, it's, it's, it's beyond desperate. This is a this is a singularly focused essence of life direct line to Elohim and nothing else at the moment mattered hear hear my cry this cry and the next phrase so you, I, I suppose a better way to say this next phrase hear my cry Elohim Give attention to my prayerful request, a supplication, but it's, a, it's stated a little different here. He's, he's really, he's really seeking the attention of Elohim. Give attention to my prayer. Give attention, pay attention to me in my praying, in my prayer. From the end of the earth, I cry out to you when my heart is overwhelmed. From the end of the earth, he's separated from everything. He's not in his throne room anymore. He's not in his palace anymore. He has no access to the tabernacle anymore. He doesn't know who his friends really are because so many close friends have betrayed him. His own son seeks to usurp his father's authority and take the throne. He's alone. And he's crying out to God from what he called the end of the earth, 
I have nowhere to be. I have no land. I have no throne. Apparently, I have no people. From the end of the earth, I cry out to you. My heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There is a place of refuge. And he knew it. And it was better than him. It was stronger than him. It was higher than him. It was a place too high for him to scale. Elohim would have to carry him to that rock, that strong fortress, that place that is impenetrable. This place is where he wants to be, and he knows that it is higher than he is. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So he makes his confession of faith and closes with his praise to God. For you were a shelter for me, a strong tower in the face of the enemy. God had never failed him. God never fails. This at that moment in time might be the worst the worst situation he'd ever been in. But the increasingly difficult situations he had been in that led him into this situation had made him realize that God had never failed him. It starts out in one way. It was a pretty big deal to kill Goliath. But then he had to face armies and nations And he had to face alliances of nations with an inferior force. He didn't have the numbers that they had. But the Lord was always with him. God was always there. God carried him through and delivered him from every enemy. You were a shelter for me, a strong tower in the face of the enemy. A tall, strong tower. That's that place that's higher. I'm safe in that place. Up there, the enemy cannot touch me, cannot harm me. This is where you are. This is where I want to be. I will dwell in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Silla, the tabernacle of the Lord, later the temple. The tabernacle of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, sheltered by the extended wings of the cherubim that practically touch the images on either end, wings extending above the mercy seat, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. But David's thoughts are not just on the tabernacle that had been in Shiloh and other places. He's thinking of eternity. You know, he says, I'm I'm not worried. I'll always be in your tabernacle. 
I will trust. So how does he know this? Because the shelter of the wings of the Lord are those wings that overshadow the mercy seat that encapsulates the law. Mercy trumps law. And the guarantee of the care that it'll always be that way symbolized by those images of cherubim whose wings extend over it, the likeness of the cherubim which had been placed at the earliest part of man's history to surround, to guard, to keep the way to the tree of life. No longer access to the paradise, no longer access to the Garden of Eden, the perfect place for man, kicked out of that, no longer can be there. But the tree of life was not destroyed. And the way to the tree of life still exists. Way over there in Ezekiel then, here comes the Merchabah, the chariot throne of the Son of God, and Ezekiel sees it coming, and it looks like a lightning storm. And it gets closer, and he says, I see, Son of God. He felt like a dead man. It was borne up by the four cherubim. Wheels within wheels, and wherever the Spirit said go, they would go. And there holding up the Son of God and His chariot throne were these cherubim. There, were four, there are four of them. There were five. The, the, the captain fell. He's Satan. He, the, the chief, the, the anointed cherub. Satan fell. Still four of them. Still four as strong as Satan. Unfallen. Moving with great swiftness to attend to the will of God. Their great duty to keep guard, watch over the way to the tree of life. Now those, those words, that description is after the time of David. But you and I have the privilege of being able to see an extended uh, characterization of these cherubim. And so David knows that it shadows the mercy seat. He says, I'm going to be with you forever in your dwelling place, in your tabernacle, because I trust in the shelter of your wings, the mercy seat, the, the, the blood that is spilled and sprinkled on that mercy seat. The Savior, the Savior. And you will see how he develops this in just a second. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. I'm sheltered. According to your covenant love, your mercy, your loving kindness. For you, Elohim, have hearkened to my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now, what does he mean by that? 
God has a covenant with David that the son of David will always be on the throne. David says, you know, whatever happens, I'm with you forever. And my heritage are those who fear your name. And they are my heritage, therefore they are those who follow me. The sons of David, the son of David. For you, Elohim, have hearkened to my vows and... You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will add days of life to the days of the king's life. His years as many generations. So David would die, but his son would be on the throne. And his son, and his son, and his son, until the time of Ezekiel. And the last of the sons of David sits on the throne just before the Babylonian conquest and almighty Yahweh comes forth before Ezekiel and he says there won't be another son of David on the throne until I put the son of David on the throne. To, to paraphrase what Yahweh says to Ezekiel. So there is this final eternal son of David who overwhelms and rules over all generations. So he describes him. He will dwell forever before Elohim. Prepare covenant loving kindness and truth to guard him, to preserve or watch over him. Eternal covenant love and eternal truth. That's pretty good. Now, that's not good, just pretty good. It's excellent. The, the established, foreordained covenant love of God that God established with His people. We didn't do it, He did it. We can't keep it, He keeps it. And He gave His absolute and eternal truth. So everything about Everything about the eternal dwelling of God, everything about the shelter of the wings, the trust, the heritage, the son of David, the great king of kings, all coming, of course, to culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. And what two things are prepared to preserve the eternal relationship between God and His own, God and His elect. Here it is. The covenant loving kindness and the absolute eternal truth of Almighty God. God says, I love you, you are mine. And then God gives us his truth that we may follow. I've said this many times. The word of God doesn't mean anything to anybody in the world except to the elect of God. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else. If you're not God's people, the word of God is meaningless to you. It doesn't thrill you. It doesn't move you. You don't even think it's true. 
if you're not of God. But the power of the Word motivates, prepares, preserves, solidifies, whatever you want to say, the people of God because of the Christ of God. So what is the centerpiece of the covenant loving kindness of God? The centerpiece is Christ. What is the centerpiece of absolute truth? Christ. Everything we study, everything that has to do with our established relationship between God and us, all that God says to us, it all, it all has to do with the great king who surpasses generations, who is, who is the heritage of those who fear your name. So here's how he ends this. Okay, he starts out, you know, I'm alone. We still have that song, don't we? Lead me to that rock. That is, I'm sure that's how he wrote it. He establishes the song in his heart. God does. And he gives it back in prayer. This is what God says today. This is what you need. This is what you need from your heart. And I'll hear it. So he starts out with, with, with uh, the need. And he cries and he prays. And his prayer leads him to be focused on his great descendant someday. The son of God, son of David, son of man. So focusing on that, he begins to think of eternity and his life with God forever and the power of God to save and to keep his people and to give to us abiding truth that will guide us through the generation in which we live. So now he says, well, you know what? Shoot, I'm just going to sing praises. So I will sing praises to what? Your name forever. In one of the adventures of David, the Ark of the Covenant was being moved from one place to another. One guy touched it and he died because he messed up. Because it looked like it was going to shake off the wagon. But anyway, David references the one who is represented by the Ark and he calls him in that passage, he says, he calls him the name. He didn't know his name. He just knew that he was coming someday. And he just says, the name. Same thing is here. Your name. Don't know his name. He's coming. So I'll sing praises to your name. It's interesting to me that in this little prayer, the name of Yahweh is not mentioned. Only Elohim which is God, great God. Because David, I'm sure, knew that the name of Yahweh was in there somewhere, but he didn't know exactly how to call this name of son of David, son of man, son of God, Messiah, 
But he had this clear and distinct knowledge of who his Savior was. Just didn't know his name. So I'll sing praises to your name. What does Philippians 2 say? God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So I will sing praises to your name forever. So the singing never stops. And this lonely, sublime, private prayer song crescendos into eternity and becomes great singing of praises to the name of the Savior forever. That I may pay my vows every day into the ages of the ages. That's a great prayer. We're going to stop there and have our deacon prayer time.